you should never just go on a low essential mineral anything diet and that includes salt so that's really the key takeaway is that there is an optimal amount of salt and that just simply telling people to consume less than x amount is undoubtedly going to cause probably more harm than good Welcome to another episode of the Neuro Experience Podcast. I'm Louisa. I'm your host. I think you're all going to enjoy today's episode, especially during the current tiring times we are facing in the world of politics and the global pandemic. My guest today is Dr. James DiNicolatino, who is a cardiovascular research scientist and doctor of pharmacy at St. Luke's Mid-America Heart Institute in Kansas City, Missouri. He's the author of The Salt Fix, Superfuel, and his latest book, The Immunity Fix. James is a well-respected and internationally known scientist and expert on health and nutrition. He's contributed extensively to health policy and has even testified in front of the Canadian Senate regarding the harms of added sugar. We start the episode off by talking about the journey of becoming a PharmD and the numerous published articles that James has researched and written. At the beginning of the episode, we also begin to discuss Immunology 101. You're going to learn about the difference between the innate and adaptive immune system. James does a great job and thorough wrap-up on defining antibodies, B-cells, how, how they fight viruses, create antibodies, and T-cells, their role in the adaptive immune system and the ability to kill infected cells to prevent viral spread. In the middle of the episode, we do tend to spend a majority of the time talking about the latest research and findings on COVID-19 and its correlation to metabolic dysfunction, comorbidities, and risk factors associated with worse COVID-19 outcomes. Then towards the end, we deep dive into supplementation, nutrition, and lifestyle interventions that help boost the immune system in an effort to fight off infections. As always, I appreciate you listening and I hope you enjoy this episode just as much as I did. If you did, don't be shy. Please leave a star rating and a review or simply tag us in your Instagram story. Without further delay, let's get into the episode. Neuroscience, neurology, longevity, and beyond. Learn everything you need to know from the best physicians and experts in the world. The Neuro Experience Podcast is a platform to help you understand what the brain is and how it shapes every part of our lives. Every episode comes to you from highly credible sources. I'm Louisa Nicola, medical neuroscientist from Australia, living in New York City. Come and take a neuro experience with me. We've been following each other for a while on Instagram and you caught my attention when a lot of people were reposting your tweets and you're very forthcoming with how you feel about the current pandemic in you know COVID-19, how it affects the immune system. And I know we're getting a lot of pseudoscience being thrown out there in the media, on social media, especially related to, you know, vitamin D and how to, you know, have a great immune system during this pandemic. So why don't you give us an insight into what you do, you know, a bit about your background and how you formed this love for, uh, I would say, not just immunity, but uh, supplementation, salt, and how to uptake a, a really good health and well-being. So my research background is in cardiovascular research. I've done that for the last uh, 10 years. 
Um, and I've published a couple hundred academic papers, primarily on nutrients and nutraceuticals for supporting health. And really, you know, sort of those uh, academic papers led me to publish, you know, several books and then including The Immunity Effects, which is the most recent publication. And I think the reason why I'm so passionate about immunity, not just from the perspective of you know, coronavirus, but there's so many quick, simple things that people can do to sort of support their own health that will translate into better immune health. And that's really what the book is about. So talk to me about your career path. Uh, you've So what is the career path of a PharmD? Well, it can take many forms. Um, so I originally started out as a community pharmacist, um, and then that led me into more of a research academic type of career. And, you know, as a, as a doctor of pharmacy, the reason why I got interested in salt when I wrote the salt fix was because of the patients that I was seeing in the community and how uh, the advice from their physicians about, you know, going on a low salt diet was actually making their health a lot worse. And so, you know, as a PharmD, you can either be research or you can be community. And I've done both. And I think it's good to have a background in both because, you know, research is great, but sometimes that doesn't translate into the real world. So um, having both a background in both is sort of, you know, kind of gives me a little bit more of a well-rounded approach. Yeah, I I think one of the biggest things that I loved about getting to know you and going on your website is you clearly articulate the words evidence-based medicine. Now, I remember back in, you know, back in grad school when I was doing clinical epidemiology, that's the one thing that our lecturer spat out to us, you know, we learned so much about not just what is, you know, what is really good evidence-based research and what is evidence-based medicine. But now in my career, I'm able to look at a journal article, for example, look at a systematic review and really understand RCTs. And I think that's where we're going wrong in the world. I see so many people putting out all these, you know, phony publications on social media and people believing it. And I've got a very strong passion, just like yourself, when it comes to, you know, how to heal the body from within and how to do it from a very scientific approach. And I don't know if you feel the same way, but are you noticing that there's this trend on social media that is built upon pseudoscience? Well, I think science is sort of how you interpret it and understanding the limitations of the science is really the first step in the first, you know, strategy to understand how to read articles and, you know, decide for yourself what the evidence is. The primary issue with most evidence is that, let's say, take salt, for example. Mm -hmm. If you don't give the patients the exact same diet with the only difference being the level of intake of sodium, you can never prove causation. And so, for example, a lot of the low salt advice is based on things like the DASH diet, where they increase fruits and vegetables, they limit processed meats, and it just so happens to be also lower in salt. When you give these patients the exact same diets, though, with the only difference being the level of intake of salt, you don't see nearly the benefits that you would see, like what is found with the DASH diet. So I think there's always limitations, uh, particularly with nutritional studies. And even if you do like metabolic ward studies where you can sort of control for almost anything, 
then it doesn't necessarily translate to real world data. So regardless of what we're talking about, um, it's very difficult to take almost anything at face value. If you really dig, you know, deeply into how a clinical trial is designed and then does it translate to the real world. So taking that into account, the regular person, because what we know with science is it's, and medicine is it can change. It's, it's, it's always changing. So a publication, you know, at the start of COVID-19 may show, you know, X results. And right now it's showing something completely different, you know, six, seven, eight months in. So just on salt, because you've mentioned that um, quite a few times already, what do we as the average human being need to know? Well, I think we need to know that salt is not a poison. It's an essential mineral. And that if you consume a low amount of salt, there are side effects. Um, Virtually everyone will have an increase in heart rate, um, an increase in stress hormones called noradrenaline, um, adrenaline, um, aldosterone, Mm. uh, renin. And if we inhibit any of these hormones with medications, that can reduce cardiovascular events and mortality. So uh, there's there's this trade-off where if you go too low on salt, It's been consistently shown to produce insulin resistance, high insulin levels, because the body uses that insulin to help the kidneys retain more salt. Low salt also leads to fatigue, uh, potentially erectile dysfunction, and sleep disturbances. And obviously, circadian rhythm and good sleep is very important for immunity. So you should never just go on a low essential mineral anything diet, and that includes salt. So that's really the key takeaway is that there is an optimal amount of salt and that just simply telling people to consume less than X amount is undoubtedly going to cause a, probably more harm than good. You know, uh, something that I find quite funny is about, I think it was about four weeks ago, there was this breaking news article, you know, that came out in Australia and I was in Australia four weeks ago and Australians are very funny. You know, right now we've got three COVID cases in my state, which is New South Wales, where Sydney is. And they put this breaking, you know, news update saying three people have been infected. So we take things very literal in Australia. And four weeks ago, there was this, uh, on a current affair, they had that we've got it all wrong. You shouldn't be having pink salt. And my mom called me, my mom, she watches the news every morning. And then she phones me. She says, Louisa, we can't buy pink salt anymore. I said, why? She said, apparently it's really bad for you. And I hate that there's this misconception when it comes to even not just sodium levels and how, you know, salt may be good or bad for you. But now we're looking into the types of salt. You know, we found out, I think 10, 20 years ago that the Saxa table salt wasn't good. So let's turn to pink rock salt. And then I read a study saying that the best type of salt that you can be consuming is Celtic salt. So what is your, what's your take on the different types of salt to ingest? So Celtic salt does contain more magnesium than most salts. Uh, It contains about 40 milligrams of magnesium per 10 grams of salt. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some uh, ancient ocean salts in Australia that can contain up to 180 milligrams of magnesium per 10 grams of salt. So you can get um, certain minerals at a fairly decent intake for particular salts. Now, pink Himalayan salt um, does contain iodine and it can range really anywhere from 25 micrograms per 10 grams to upwards of 100 to 200 micrograms Mm. per 10 grams of salt. And essentially 10 grams of salt is pretty much what most people consume in a day, maybe a little bit higher than what we consume in the U.S. 
Um, but you know, these types of unrefined natural salts typically do have certain minerals, maybe one to four different types of minerals at a level of intake that could potentially contribute to, you know, your RDA or the recommended dietary intake for nutrients and pink Himalayan salt, particularly iodine. So it's not really necessarily, you don't have to go out to the supermarket and really research which salt to get in hindsight. Um, well, I, I would say if you're trying to um, support iodine health or if you're not getting an adequate intake, then then your pink rock salts are going to have the uh, levels of iodine in there that could potentially have a meaningful effect, whereas most other salts, including your typical sea salts, won't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess if you are looking to get magnesium, Celtic, or certain other salts, and you can ask for a certificate of analysis to see how much uh, magnesium is contained in certain salts, but there are there are some from Norway and from Australia that do contain good amounts of magnesium. So, I mean, you do have to do some research if you're looking for those nutrients in regards to which salt to take. Mm. I'll send some Celtic salt home to my mom then. Um, now, I want to focus the bulk of the episode on your new book, which I believe was just released, The Immunity Fix. And you teamed up with Sim Land, uh, who is a very well-known biohacker. and in this book, you deep dive into how to naturally uh, how to naturally boost your immune system. You come up with a comprehensive guide to how the immune system works, how different viruses and infections affect our health, and how to prevent and fight them. And now, I couldn't think of a better way, you know, a better time in life to publish a book right now um, than now during the pandemic. So, why don't we start from scratch? And why don't you give us an overview on what is immunity? So essentially how I view immunity is it's sort of this, you know, communication between your immune cells and your own metabolic health and nutrient status, because they're all interconnected. I mean, essentially, if you, if you want to boil down what immunity is, it's the immune cells that are formed from your bone marrow. So essentially your bone marrow produces stem cells, which then produce hematopoietic cells and that eventually can turn into immune cells and you have your innate immunity which is your sort of your first line defense which is like your natural killer cells your white blood cells your macrophages your monocytes and then you have your adaptive immunity which is your b cells which produce antibodies and those sort of tag pathogens and then you have your t cells um, which there's numerous different types um, and they sort of your adaptive immunity there can be some crossover. So for example, like uh, your adaptive immune system that has experienced other coronaviruses from common colds, they do have cross reactivity, it seems, um, to COVID. That doesn't necessarily mean you have um, cross immunity, but there is cross reactivity. And because the sequence, obviously, of coronaviruses from a common cold and SARS-CoV-2 is fairly similar. And so your adaptive immune system, while a lot of people think that it takes days and weeks to have any type of um, benefit, it's actually probably the most effective weapon because it's a very highly specialized targeted system that's much less inflammatory than your innate immune system. And when your adaptive immune system sees a sequence that's fairly similar, there does seem to be some potential cross immunity. So in a nutshell, that's that's what I view as immunity. So 
when we're talking about uh, COVID-19 and some of the risk factors associated with worst COVID-19 outcomes, are we saying that the coronavirus is affecting which, like, which part of the immune system or is it the entire thing? So essentially, um, how I view a virus is it's not necessarily the virus that's the problem. I mean, it is to an, a certain extent, but it's it's sort of your own immune system that's the problem. So, for example, the people that have the worst outcomes have something called lymphopenia. They have a reduction in lymphocytes, essentially a reduction in their adaptive immune system. So their B cells and their T cells are lower and they don't work as well. Now, T cells, particularly your CD8 T killer cells, they target viruses in a very specific and programmed way, and they induce cell death via apoptosis. And so it's not an inflammatory killing and they don't kill nearby healthy cells. Unfortunately, that goes down as you age, your adaptive immune system goes down and your innate immune system takes over more, which is a pro-inflammatory killing. Essentially, you know, you're relying more upon your white blood cells, your macrophages, your monocytes to kill the virus instead of the calm anti-inflammatory way where your adaptive immune system would kill the virus. And so when you have that shift where your T cells are not working as well, that's a huge problem to any virus. And that's going to increase the risk of having cytokine storm. And at the same time, what we also see through immunosenescence or sort of like this aging of the immune system, which can happen with just poor metabolic health, is you have a reduction in your own production of type one interferons. Essentially, they interfere with the virus. And so people that have poor outcomes have a poor functioning immune system. And that's really the ultimate problem of what's happening. And there's many things that drive that. So what we're finding in the literature is what you just said, that um, people who are having poor outcomes, worse COVID-19 outcomes, are the ones with lowered immune system. But what we don't know is the people, you know, how do we know, how do we know what our immune system is currently, you know, disregarding metabolic, uh, metabolic health and metabolic dysfunction? How can somebody understand more about their immunity? Well, it'd be great to have a test, right? Everyone has <laughs> one blood test that can say your immune system's good. Nope. Your immune system's not doing well. Mm. And I mean, technically you could get CD8, T cell counts and CD4 T cell counts, right? You do that with people who have HIV and we know those levels are extremely low and we know that their immune system is not functioning well. Um, so that's one piece of it is you can look at um, white blood cells and other things as well um, to, to try to get a picture of what's going on with the immune system. And then at the same token, um, your own metabolic health uh, in regards to there's typically five different um, aspects of metabolic syndrome, uh, elevated blood glucose, blood pressure, waist circumference, and triglycerides, and then um, having a low HDL. If you have three or more out of those five, you're considered to have metabolic syndrome. And really, if you have three or more out of those five, you are very likely to have a worse COVID outcome and probably have a dysfunctional immune system. Yeah, I've... Um... And the audience will know this. I've been interviewing so many people 
you know, MDs, PhDs on metabolic dysfunction and metabolic health. And it's something that I've been taking seriously this year. I, at the start of the pandemic, I went back to Australia and I spent some time there, you know, six, seven months and I got to understand my body and I started to wear a CGM, which I speak extensively on. And it really changed my life because it really showed me somebody who's takes her health so seriously. It really showed me that I actually had no idea what spiked my my glucose levels you know and i really wish that there was um you know regardless of hemoglobin a1c i really wish that there was a way that every single person can be understanding and being educated on metabolic dysfunction and how to correct it through the use of a cgm continuous glucose monitor because that really changed my life and i think for me it does have a major effect on um on my immunity. So I really love that you've pointed that out. Now, what, in your opinion, what seems to go wrong with the immune system in those who suffer worse COVID-19 outcomes? Because we've got people who end up in hospital and then they recover. They're put on a ventilator. They may be in there for a week, two weeks, they may recover. Then we've got the other side of people who may, you know, may produce a positive COVID test, but they are they're really not symptomatic and it doesn't affect them too much. Right. And so essentially those people who it doesn't affect them a lot are people who have that, that good adaptive immune system taking over and having a controlled killing of the virus and not killing healthy bystander cells and have good type one interferon response. And essentially we see the people um, with the worst COVID outcomes and we can sort of go from, from bottom to top um, if you are obese, you are at a 50% higher risk of dying from COVID and a twofold higher risk of being hospitalized. If you are morbidly obese, that means a BMI of 40 or above, that boosts your risk of dying from uh, COVID by threefold. Metabolic syndrome increases that by three and a half fold, and you have a four and a half times higher risk of being hospitalized. And if you have hypertension or type 2 diabetes, that's going to increase the risk of dying from COVID by four and a half fold, cardiovascular disease by sevenfold, and then just being over the age of 60 is basically the highest risk factor, anywhere from nine to tenfold higher risk of dying. And these things, besides your age, are things that are primarily driven through diet and lifestyle. When, can I just ask on the obesity front, why is that? Is it because of... It, is it because of the cortisol in the body from the fat? Like, why is it that obese patients are at a higher risk? Well, I think there's a lot of potential issues. So typically what you see is you have an increase in leptin and you have an increase in insulin when you are obese. And both of those sort of drive inflammation and drive, um, you know, a dysfunctional immune cell functioning. And so really, I think it comes down to primarily those two issues, but also you're at a higher sort of baseline of chronic low-grade inflammation as well. And since poor COVID-19 outcomes are really resulting from a cytokine storm in the lungs primarily, um, inflammation is a huge part of this piece. Yeah, it's, it is a very huge part of this piece. And it's also something that we, you know, we misconstrued and believe that it's, you know, a stress hormone when, it, you know, and it is, but I also think that there's two sides to it, you know, not enough of it 
is bad, but too much of it is also bad. So let's let's dive into that. And I actually want to know more about your book. Do you give you don't just give the insight into the relationship between viruses and immunity, but you also give a lot of nutritional and supplementation advice on how to support the immune system and you give you know lifestyle practices to help support the immune system so let's go into we've just we've just seen the correlation between uh, covid-19 the risk factors associated with covid-19 when it comes to the immune system we understand that so now let's talk about ways to boost the immune system and if you can actually boost the immune system because I know that we haven't even gone into you know oncology people who may have a debilitating disease, they may have a life-threatening disease and they're also dealing with the pandemic. So they've got a, a decreased immunity. You know, some people who are... Um, you know, who have got cancer, for example, they have a decreased immunity so they may not be able to go outside too much. So let's talk about who can increase their um, immunity and how do we do that? So I think one of the best stories on this whole immunity topic that I like to sort of tell is there is um, a great example of um, how nutrients or lack thereof can lead to worse outcomes from a viral infection. So there is one virus called Coxsackie virus, and it typically doesn't really cause too many issues. I mean, some kids, if they get Coxsackie, will get hand, foot, and mouth disease. But if you are deficient in selenium and you get Coxsackie virus, this led to a very well-known disease called Kishan disease, which is mm. cardiomyopathy. Mm. How you treat these people with this virally induced cardiomyopathy is you just give them selenium and it fixes their cardiomyopathy. Mm. So the importance of that is directly applicable then to COVID because both are RNA viruses, but it goes to show you that you can take a non-virulent virus and you can simply make someone deficient in a single nutrient like selenium, and that could lead to cardiomyopathy, which can potentially kill you. Now, there are definitely long-term complications that we're starting to see from COVID and cardiac MRI studies, even several months after, are indicating that if you've been hospitalized with COVID, there may be up to 78% of people who are dealing with myocarditis or still some type of inflammation of the heart. Mm. So, you know, I used to sort of be a little naive and think, well, if I'm healthy, that's okay. I'm going to survive COVID. You know, there's only a 1% mortality. Uh, but then when you start to look at the cardiac MRI studies, we still don't know exactly what is a, the long-term consequences, even if you sort of rapidly quote unquote recover. Um, so that's, you know, just something that we need to keep in mind in regards to could, are we going to start seeing evidence like we saw with Kishan disease once they figured out that it was a combination of selenium deficiency and Coxsackie virus, which is an RNA virus? Are we going to start then seeing certain things, um, certain nutrient deficiencies associated with poor COVID-19 outcomes and the long-term consequences? And my guess is yes. And my guess would be that selenium would be a big piece of that, but probably any vitamin or mineral, if you are deficient in, is probably going to increase the risk of having a poor outcome with almost any virus. Yeah. And I completely agree with you. And it's the, the only backlash I have on that is we're not going and getting blood tests to, you know, the average person isn't going to go to the doctor and order, you know, 
a battery of tests to find out and figure out during this time what they're deficient in and what they're not deficient in. You know, I always say to everybody, patients, clients, whoever that may be, go and do even a basic uh, 23andMe genetic test. Find out you know, who you are really, you know, what are your, what genes, you know, what, what is your genetic makeup and then do a battery of blood work. You know, I'm so big on that. And sadly, not a lot of us are. And so we're not understanding what we're deficient in. So what we do is we rush to Whole Foods and we buy a number of different products, regardless of food, even if, you know, even if nutrition isn't corrected, we want the easy fix. So we go and we rush and we buy zinc, we buy vitamin C, not knowing how much to take milligram wise, not knowing when to take it, not knowing the correct dosage, the the correct brands to take. We just shove all these synthetic drugs, some of them, you know, that are synthetic into our bodies. And I don't actually think it's doing us too much harm, but I also don't think it's doing well. So what's your take on the the ones who are rushing and buying and shoving so many synthetic materials into their system? So I think it's a good point and a good question. Um, I think it's always important to try to start with diet first um, because diet comes with um, numerous minerals and vitamins and cofactors. And, you know, typically when you do a more shotgun approach and a more natural approach, that's going to give you the best results. Um, but even with our own food supply, um, unless you're buying from like a regenerative farm, if you look at the studies looking at nutrient content in food, just compared to 50 years ago, um, there's been a a dramatic reduction in many vitamins and minerals Um, and not just in vegetables, but also in animal foods as well. So if you look at the average reduction in copper in in numerous vegetables, it's around a 75% loss in copper levels in vegetables from the 1940s compared to today. Um, uh, magnesium and iron have dropped in vegetables, magnesium by up to 35%, iron by up to 50% and, and calcium up to 50%. And then animal foods, we see lower reductions, not as much. Um, typically you see about a 10 to 20% drop. So while I think it's, it's great to always get nutrients through diet, it sort of depends on well, what, what type of soil mm-hmm. is the food being grown in and how nutrient dense is the food. Because, you know, even let's say your typical factory farm meat is going to be much more uh, sort of nutrient depleted than a pastured animal. And then even compared to a pastured animal, if you have an animal that's doing a different type of what's called uh, multi-paddock adaptive um, grazing, where they're grazing on 30 different types of pastures versus just one is going to have a different nutrient profile. Wild animals are going to have a different nutrient profile. So it's great to always get your, your nutrients from food always, I think first and foremost, but for the majority of people are they, should they rely on just their food for their, um, for optimal nutrient health? I don't know if we can do that anymore. Mm. I'd be really interested to see the relationship between COVID-19 and neurology. And I know that there's a lot of information that's coming out now to say that the neurological symptoms are only becoming more and more scary with those who have got COVID-19. They're now saying that the list now includes stroke, brain hemorrhage, memory loss, um, and all these unheard series of serious diseases, um, you know, from the COVID-19 pandemic, is there anything that you have read lately when it comes to the correlation between 
COVID-19 and the brain? So COVID-19 seems to be able to access the brain through the olfactory system. Um, and you can get sort of like the cytokine storm, not just in the lungs, but also in the brain. I would caution on the prevalence of this because typically like if you're a diabetic, um, your risk of having like acute respiratory distress, um, is like around 16%, whereas neurological issues might only be around 1%. So while it is, um, an intriguing sort of phenomenon, it doesn't seem to be super prevalent when compared to like what's happening to the lungs because there's so many ACE2 receptors on the lungs. Mm -hmm. So sort of focusing on the brain, I think while interesting, I think the primary cause of why people are dying is what's happening to the lungs and then the sepsis and, you know, secondary, you know, bacterial infections and things like that, that are happening should probably be our primary focus. That makes sense. Yeah, no, definitely. So what are you doing to protect yourself on a day-to-day basis? So, I mean, I guess I can go through the gamut of kind of touching on what we talked about is trying to source my foods uh, Mm. as close to nature as possible. So I I, um, consume things like elk and bison and that are there, they actually live in a lot longer than even pastured um, cows. So the longer an animal lives before they're slaughtered, the longer they're going to be able to take up nutrients and the more nutrient dense. And so if you look at typical wild animals, they're much more nutrient dense than even grass fed meat or grass fed cattle. So for example, um, like things like elk and bison will have three times the thiamine, twice the amount of B2, um, two and a, two and a half times the amount of copper. And then I also make sure I consume a blend of meats. So that would be heart and liver blended with muscle meat because liver is, you know, very high in nutrients that are difficult to get in muscle meat, like vitamin A, folate, copper. And so that's sort of my first, first and foremost thing that I always do is, mm. am I consuming the most nutrient-dense meats, and am I including more than just muscle meat? I'm so happy that you said that because there is this huge, huge debate between the carnivores and the vegans. And, you know, I've I've interviewed uh, somebody, I've interviewed an MD, uh, Paul Saladino, who's very big on the carnivore diet. He was just recently on um, Joe Rogan, and he's getting a lot of backlash. And then, you know, I've interviewed people who are, you know, predominantly plant-based. And of course, there's um, there's pros and cons to both, just depending on the human. But I'm really happy that you said that um, in terms of immunity, you're eating an array of different meats. I myself personally have never tried elk. I don't think it's very big in Australia. I don't think we have, even have it or bison. So that's something that I'm going to include. Um, and I think people are very scared to actually go in and eat heart and liver, although it is very good for you. Would you go to a, just a regular, do you go to Whole Foods? Do you go to the the butchering you ask for, for liver? And is it from a cow? Is it from sheep? Is it from lambs? Like where are you getting them from? I think the, the, the cheapest and best way for people to do this is they don't have to eat um, elk and bison. They can, they can get um, pastured cattle blends. Mm-hmm. That would be much cheaper um, because 
essentially, if you're, if you hate the taste of liver, then I think it is much better to consume something like elk or bison because it's so much higher in the nutrients that are deficient, Mm -hmm. um, in muscle meat, uh, from cattle. However, if you are willing to eat some liver, um, the best way to do it is through a blend of uh, essentially like 75% ground muscle meat with the the 25% being a sort of half and half between heart and liver. So heart is really good for CoQ10, um, which is important for energy production. And then the liver is going to give you just so, so many more vitamins and minerals. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this can be bought. I don't want to sort of, you know, give or, or call out one you know, company versus another, but essentially you can just go online and there's many uh, regenerative uh, farmers, ranchers that, that can ship uh, blends of these types of meats. Mm. I think that's um, another thing where we're going wrong. When we eat meat, we're typically just eating the muscle. We're not really going for the, the ancestral, you know, um, head to tail and looking at um, the different parts of it, like the, like the liver. And we, you know, I, I personally don't eat it. It's something that I'm going to have to include. Um, okay. So when we've got that now, what are you doing in terms of vegetables? You're obviously eating an array of different vegetables and looking at, I guess you could say the rainbow, eat the rainbow. Are you typically having anything more or less? So, so, well, I guess my meat consumption isn't, or my animal food consumption doesn't stop there. Um, I would, I always consume every single day pastured eggs, because they're a good source of selenium and iodine and omegas as well, omega-3 and omega-6. Um, and then I also make sure to try to consume wild salmon, um, typically once or twice every two weeks. But it's, you know, it's hard because wild salmon doesn't taste the best unless you season it really good. And even then, if you're, if you're consuming true wild salmon, particularly sockeye salmon, it's definitely fishy. So it's something I sort of have to force myself to eat um, compared to even just blends with liver. I barely taste the liver, but you know, with wild salmon, it's a little more difficult, but I think that's super important because wild salmon is very high in vitamin A and vitamin D. So if I'm not getting wild salmon, typically I'll consume a high quality cod liver oil, which has good amounts of A and D and omega threes. And that's, that's essentially like I try to do after food, like more of like a whole food supplement um, rather than a quote unquote synthetic. So, so my next step, if I don't think I can get it through food or sunlight would be a more whole food supplement approach. And so cod liver oil would be one of those um, selenium from yeast which is something I take as well would be another sort of like more whole food approach. Camu camu, which is just an extract of the camu camu fruit, just one of the highest vitamin C fruits. So it's a whole food source of vitamin C, but also a plethora of phytonutrients. Mm-hmm. And I also consume Ezekiel bread for manganese and magnesium and also selenium. And I typically don't consume a lot of vegetables. I'll consume spinach at this point. Like, you know, I've done almost every single diet except mm-hmm. a full week. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, I really might only consume spinach about three times a week. And maybe I'll include some organic tubers with onions. But I don't really consume a whole lot of vegetables at this point um, because I don't see necessarily the need when I am able to find sort of whole fruit extracts or 
other sources of nutrients that are lacking in animal foods. That'll give me the full spectrum of phytonutrients. And then just, you know, certain foods that I can, or vegetables that I can tolerate well, like just a little bit of spinach or um, potatoes and onions is something I, you know, stick to. Mm. What's your, um, what's your take on EPA, DHA? Let's actually talk about supplementation and go a bit deeper into it than what we just did. Um, because I'm, I'm very big on EPA and DHA, especially from um, a brain function perspective and having a, a better performing brain. What's your, what's your take on EPA? So I like DHA better because DHA can be retro converted in the body to EPA. Mm. Whereas EPA, a, a very, very small amount is going to be formed and turned into DHA. So mm. if there was one long chain omega-3 fatty acid that you should consume, in my opinion, DHA wins hands down. So essentially how you can view EPA and DHA is EPA is more of the circulatory omega, more found in um, the blood, uh, whereas DHA is more of a tissue uh, Omega-3, more in the brain and the heart. So it's more of the organ omega-3 that gets released, whereas EPA is more of a circulating omega-3, if that makes sense. Mm. And I've published a lot on what, you know, what is more of the optimal dose. And typically, when we're looking at a society like the United States or a Western diet type of society, your omega-6 baseline is so high that you're already at like a 20 to 1 to maybe even 50 to one ratio of omega-6 to omega-3. And if you take those populations that have a good omega-6 to 3 ratio, and you just give them one gram of EBA and DHA, like places like Italy or Japan, that has been shown in clinical studies, you know, especially in secondary prevention of heart attacks, to significantly you know, reduce mortality and fairly quickly. You give that same low dose of omega-3 to an American population or a Western-type diet population, it does nothing because you're putting a drop of omega-3 in a sea of omega-6. Mm. But what does work is uh, they, they did come up with a study called Reduce It. They finally gave four grams of, essentially, it was fully EPA, um, which I know I said DHA is my favorite, but still, I mean, there's going to be benefits regardless. And that was able to significantly reduce cardiovascular events by 25% when they finally gave a good dose of EPA uh, to like an American type of population or Western type of population. So the dose is going to directly depend on the background omega-6 intake, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm really happy that you brought up um, the different populations because when we look at magnesium, for example, you find a greater amount of people who are deficient in magnesium in the United States rather than in Australia. So we really have to take different populations and geographic location into it because at the end of the day, it comes down to how it's manufactured and the soil, like you said earlier. So I think when we look at anything, whether it's EPA, DHA, um, geographic location, plays a major role. And I don't know if that's the same for vitamin D and this whole debate between the correlation of uh, vitamin D deficiency and COVID-19. So I think um, we don't know. We don't definitively know. The closest we have is a small study that gave calcifidiol, which is a partially activated vitamin D um, medication, 
But essentially, when you take vitamin D, if you have good magnesium status, you will convert it to calcifidiol. It's the first step in the liver in order to do that. And it was, again, small clinical study would absolutely 100% need to be reproduced in a much larger study, um, especially because if you looked at the baseline characteristics, they were biased towards calcifidiol to have a better outcome. Um, and so that's why you got to be very leery of tiny, small studies that show huge benefits because the study showed a 25-fold higher risk of ending up in the ICU if you had COVID and you didn't take the calcifidiol. So, you know, essentially 2% of COVID patients who got calcifidiol that were in the hospital um, went to the ICU, whereas um, 50% of COVID patients who were in hospitalized that did not get the calcifidiol, again, which is that partially activated vitamin D, ended up in the ICU. Now, to me, red flags go off when you see something that dramatic in, in a small study. So I think if we reproduce that study, personally, do I think there would be some benefit? I personally think there would be. Would it be a 25-fold reduction in ending up in the ICU? I don't think that, I don't think it would be, be, be close to that. Yeah, I think the anything right now, like in terms of studies, it's it's so we have to really take it with a grain of salt because we're just going to drive ourselves insane. I don't think we have enough time to produce a you know a retrospective study on vitamin D and the correlation between that and the virus. Yet, I think it's going to take a, a bit longer to really come up with the definitive answers to that. Um, now, vitamin C. You know, we, we, we hear, we've heard about it for years. It's also known as ascorbic acid. It's an essential nutrient, widely recognized for all of its antioxidant properties. Where, what do we know about that in relation to, um, in terms of viruses? Because even in small quantities, I, I know that vitamin C can protect critical molecules in the body, such as lipids, carbs, proteins, um, DNA, RNA, and it can protect it from damage. By reactive oxygen species. So what do we know about um, ascorbic acid and should we be taking it? So what, what we know about vitamin C is that almost every single animal produces, you know, a lot of vitamin C. So for example, a goat will produce the human equivalent of about 14 grams of vitamin C every single day. And if they get sick, if they're stressed, they'll produce up to 100 grams of vitamin C per day. Humans don't produce their own vitamin C, so it's an essential mineral. So that sort of differentiates us between almost every other species is that we have to rely on getting a dietary source of it. And what is that optimal amount? Um, and how much did we used to consume of vitamin C? And I mean, that will depend on how far back you go in evolution, and it'll certainly depend on the source that you look at. But essentially, for 30 million years, primates typically would consume anywhere from 1,000 to 5,000 milligrams of vitamin C. And then, um, obviously, that would go down as hominins you know, came into play. However, we would consume nose to tail, which means we would consume organs, which are much higher in vitamin C than muscle meat. We would consume blood, which contains fairly high levels of vitamin C, as does cerebral spinal fluid and other fluids. And skin. Um, take, for example, the Inuit that consumed muktuk, which is whale skin. It's like one of the highest concentrated sources for animal foods. You know, vitamin C, it's like 30 to 40 milligrams um, per three ounces. 
And the Inuit was said to consume anywhere from three to 500 milligrams of vitamin C per day when they had killed like a whale, which would feed, you know, a 50,000 pound whale would feed a tribe of Inuit for eight months and their dogs. And they could have consumed three to 500 milligrams of vitamin C every single day through the consumption of muktuk or whale skin. And so we are definitely at an evolutionary mismatch compared to in regards to our vitamin C intake. It's definitely much lower uh, than compared to whether you were a carnivore Inuit or whether you were at the equator eating lots of fruit, you would have consumed at least probably a couple hundred milligrams of vitamin C on a fairly consistent basis. Um, And then what the studies show us around vitamin C is it has the largest benefits in people who are highly active, particularly marathon runners who are at a two to six fold higher risk of upper respiratory tract infections. And the studies are very clear that if you, you know, take like a a gram of vitamin C per day that can um, that's associated with, Anywhere from, you know, like a five to 70% reduction in the incidence of upper respiratory tract infections. And for like the typical person who isn't like a heavy athlete, one to two grams of vitamin C is typically associated with a 20% reduction in both the duration and the severity of things like the common cold. Yeah, I think um, uh, something really important to bring up is that alcohol consumption, which we've seen an increase in during the pandemic, you know, alcohol alcohol consumption increases urinary vitamin C losses by nearly 50%, which suggests that a higher intake might be required to prevent the deficiency in regular or heavy drinkers. And we never really see the the sim, you know, we never really look and compare the the amount of um, vitamin C or, or any other type of um, dietary intake um, that we we are taking in when it comes to alcohol. We don't really we don't really look at you know what is getting depleted through urine when we increase our alcohol consumption. That's a good point. Uh, alcohol is also um, an excreter of magnesium as well. Mm. And I think what sort of what you're touching on beyond alcohol is very important. And, and that is we are a sick population and we, most of us are in a state of oxidative stress, which will overconsume compared to being in a healthy state, numerous nutrients. I mean, especially vitamin C if you're at a higher oxidative stress level. And so we are just a population that needs more nutrients simply because we're at a higher inflammatory state. Mm. Mm. It's um, it's scary. I whenever I talk about inflammation, I really look at the things that you know. I always say the the things that God gifted you. You know, I'm very big on sleep. I think it's our the biggest thing that we can be doing. It's our most you know, un, most underrated high performance tool that we have. If we're sleeping well, our sleep if our sleep quality is great, we're sleeping consistently. We can generally boost our our mood, our brain health, and our immunity. Have you done much research on sleep? Yeah. So sleep, I mean, if you're sleep deprived for just like three days, um, that can lead to insulin resistance. But essentially, um, what we were talking about, about our nutrient status directly affects sleep. Because if you want to synthesize serotonin, which gets converted to melatonin, Um, You need certain nutrients like magnesium, vitamin C, zinc, B vitamins. If 
you don't have those, you are not able to have the enzymes that convert um, 5-HTP to serotonin and then serotonin to melatonin. And you need melatonin, obviously, to help you fall asleep. And so uh, we can't talk about you know good sleep without good nu- nutrition because that's what runs the whole machinery. However, um, there's this huge, again, evolution, evolutionary mismatch between um, today's world and how we used to get uh, light. And so we used to get very bright days and very dark nights. And that sets, and that's how we evolutionarily evolved for millions of years through this highly alternating light dark cycle based on the axial rotation of the, of the earth. And our whole circadian clocks evolved on this 24 hour dark light cycle. And essentially you have the master clock, which is the suprachiasmatic nucleus um, controlling your peripheral clocks, which control your hormones. And so the reason why their cortisol is high in the morning is because of circadian clocks. The reason why sex hormones are high at 9 a.m., like testosterone, is because of circadian clocks and Mm. so on and so forth. And uh, sleep is so important for immunity, in my opinion, obviously, from a whole reset perspective in the glymphatic system and, you know, sort of handling all the oxidative stress that you took in for the day, but also because of melatonin. Um, Most people think of melatonin um, as simply being the sleep hormone and that it's just released in the pineal gland in the brain. Um, But it's actually secreted throughout the entire day. Um, It can freely pass into any cell it's found to be, at least in animals, twice as concentrated in bone marrow compared to the blood. And the bone marrow is where all our immune cells come from. And we think that melatonin is so high in bone marrow to protect those premature stem cells from being damaged. And if your circadian clocks are messed up, you're going to probably have a lower amount of melatonin to protect those stem cells. And you'll probably produce more damaged stem cells and more damaged immune cells. And so that shows you how circadian clocks can potentially affect immune system health. The only thing that I'm not sure of is the, when we take melatonin, I was reading a study saying that we only really, you know, from a supplementation perspective, um, an oral dosage, when we take it in, we're only really consuming 2%. So, uh, there's been the study to show that there's a lot of high level athletes. I think they put like 2000 athletes on a 100 milligram milligram suppository. And um, it had a greater effect than taking an oral dosage of let's say 10 milligrams. And that's the only thing where, and this may be the same for um, many other supplements as well. I don't know if the absorption is as as good as taking it, you know, through an, a, a drip IV, for example. So, I don't know what the you know where we where we fall on that aspect. That's a uh, good question. I've never looked into the bioavailability of of orally supplementing with melatonin, mm. um, which is primarily why my research is focused on sort of circadian clocks and, and lights and light at night, what that does to melatonin Mm. and supporting melatonin in a more natural way than just supplementing. However, with that being said, 
Uh, I do love clinical studies and Mm -hmm. our systematic reviews and meta-analyses of high-dose melatonin in the evening, typically 20 milligrams in patients with cancer. And those meta-analyses have shown significant improvements in mortality uh, in cancer patients from randomized trials using high-dose melatonin. So typically, you only use one to three milligrams at night to help you sleep. These were typically using 20 milligrams in the evening. And so if that can do, if 20 milligrams can significantly improve survival in those cancer studies, I would say that the bioavailability from a 20 milligram oral dose of melatonin is having some type of clinical effect. Mm. Well, look, I um, when I supplement with melatonin, I'm taking 10 milligrams, and it really works really nicely for me. Whether that's uh, whether that's placebo, whether I'm only taking in three percent or two percent, I know that um, it has a great effect on me. And I do supplement with it on nights where I, uh, I guess I didn't sleep the well the night before, or I've um, I'm suffering from jet lag. Um, okay. As we wrap up, why don't we talk about some of the lifestyle practices to help support the immune system in terms of cardiovascular fitness? So when I was researching, um, you know, for the immunity fix, I was I came across um, these studies where if you heat shock mice, essentially you put them in a sauna prior to injecting them with uh, virulent, fatal bird flu, you can reduce the mortality, lung pathology, and viral replication. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. Um, and, you know, what was also interesting, too, is that a fever is a first-line defense against viruses, and that if you go into a sauna or you exercise in the heat, you're sort of mimicking a fever through what's called hyperthermia or sort of like this exogenously you know, way to boost your core body temperature. And through that research, you can understand that the body has evolved, right? This fever mechanism for many pathogenic infections, including viruses. And why, like, why would we produce a fever? Well, viruses simply do not replicate as well at elevated temperatures. And it's kind of interesting because Viruses are so nasty, yet they seem to have a little bit of a a weakness. And and one of those weaknesses many times is heat. They simply cannot tolerate heat that well. Um, But there's more to the story than just, you know, the increase from, let's say, 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit to 102. um, And, you know, having sort of inhibitory viral replication properties from the elevation and core body temperature, but it's really probably primarily driven by these heat shock proteins that get released. So this is our, our evolutionary helpers that sort of repair damaged proteins when our core body temperature elevates, because at a certain point, your proteins start breaking down and heat shock proteins get released to repair that breakdown. And essentially what you're doing is you're doing two things. You're mimicking hormesis. So you're sort of stressing the cell out to make it more resilient to other stressors, which could be viruses. But the second thing you're doing is you're releasing uh, something called heat shock protein 70. And for viruses to replicate, they have to export something called a viral ribonucleoprotein complex out of your own cell, right? So they hack your own machinery and start re, uh, sort of uh, reproducing and uh, replicating. 
And M M1 protein so needs to dock onto the viral ribonucleoprotein complex before it can be exported. Well, heat shock protein 70 can bind to that uh, viral ribonucleoprotein complex and prevent M1 protein from binding to it and prevent viral export. And so we have good mechanisms in animal studies that, uh, you know, heat shocking them and through the release of heat shock proteins can, uh, you know, prevent viral replication, whether this would also work with in humans in coronavirus. Um, I don't know if we can say for sure, but there was a, a small clinical study that looked at, uh, they split groups into two. It was a 50 patient randomized study. And what they did was this one group of patients got uh, sauna sessions. I believe it was three times a week and the other group did not. And it reduced the risk of getting the common cold by 50%. And we do see epidemiologically as well, countries that typically use um, sauna may have better outcomes and with COVID compared to others and other uh, viruses as well. So I think it's just interesting that, um, and I, I do have a sauna now because, because of this, those potential benefits. Oh, but there's all, you got one for your home? I do. I have a, oh, uh, so jealous. Yeah. I have a clear light infrared and I also um, recently got the red light uh, tower therapy, which provides oh, both yeah. red lights and infrared light. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I've actually read extensively. Obviously, you'd probably know Dr. Rhonda Patrick and how um, she's. She, I think she just got a sauna as well, and how she suggests that I think it's around four days or five days um, per week in the sauna for at least. I, I forget the temperature. She said. I think it was, you know, like you said, a, a sixty-five and above. But she said to really get the full effects of the heat shock proteins um, to have a biological effect. You think you need to be spending what is it forty minutes in there four to five times a week? So it depends on um, actually how quickly your core body temperature elevates. Okay. And essentially, there are two different types of saunas. I mean, there's there's more than that, but it comes down to your traditional Finnish sauna versus an infrared. So a traditional sauna heats you in a different way than an infrared sauna. So a traditional sauna has to be a lot higher in temperature mm-hmm. compared to an infrared because Traditional saunas heat you via convection heat. So they sort of heat the outside air. And typically, those types of saunas are about 200 to 250 degrees Fahrenheit, whereas an infrared sauna only has to be like 140 to 170 because it uses, it does use some sort of convection heat, but it also heats you from the inside out by using infrared uh, waves, which is part of the spectrum of sunlight. Uh, So what the studies typically show is even in a traditional sauna, um, you really, most of the benefit is going to start occurring at about the 20 minute mark, 20 to 30 minutes, I would say is probably your optimal range. If you go past, I would say the 30 minute mark, you're going to start probably having more negatives than positives. Um, and so I personally don't typically go in a sauna longer than uh, 30 minutes. If I'm going in and it's already, let's say 150 degrees and I'm in my infrared sauna, I would, I typically do not go longer than 30 minutes. See, I'm on the, you know, and I, I would love to have um, a sauna in my New York city apartment, but um, I'm also in the belief that on the other end of the spectrum, cold shock proteins also have 
an enormous effect, a positive effect on not just uh, brain function, but also immunity. Have you done any work on not so much cryotherapy? Uh, I think the studies don't really suggest cryotherapy has the same beneficial effects as getting into an ice bath, for example. But what's your take on ice baths and cold shock proteins? So, per, I mean, from, a, from an evidence perspective, heat has a lot more evidence than cold. Mm in regards to having benefits on the immune system. Um, and in fact, be, being cold, especially if you have a current infection, is going to make things a lot worse. Mm. So I caution against uh, cold therapy. I, mm. I mean, even a lot of athletes are icing themselves after exercise, and that's been shown to potentially prevent the benefits that you get through exercise, whereas heat seems to improve uh, the benefits. So, you know, the typical ice after exercise or an injury, I don't think there's very good evidence for that. And I think it can actually make things worse. Now there, I think there's some aspects of cold therapy that may have benefits in regards to maybe increasing brown fat, mm. um, increasing insulin sensitivity to a certain degree, but you have to weigh the the risks with the benefits. And personally, there's, I'm not sure where I sort of land on it, it, are you really improving your health by doing cold plunges a couple of days a week or are you doing worse to your, for your health or are you doing nothing? Mm-hmm. And to me, there's just not enough evidence for, for me to make an opinion on it. Yeah. I think everything that I, um, that I've learned and researched and studied when it comes to cold therapy is in relation to uh, MTBI, like anybody who's had a concussion or taken a blow to the head, um, obviously. So I've looked at it in terms of how cold increases norepinephrine and um, one of the most important response mechanisms of the human body is centralized around the regulation of norepinephrine. And I know that it's depleted when a, a player, an NFL player takes a blow to the head. So I started to become very, you know, it, I would say obsessed with understanding how cold shock proteins actually have a positive effect on the brain. And there have been studies to suggest they do. However, it comes down to if you're really getting into cold water for like for you know, three times a week at a temperature of 40 degrees Fahrenheit, like which is around four degrees Celsius, which is absolutely freezing. And you really have to get in there to dramatically decrease your core body temperature to have that norepinephrine release and effect on the brain. So this is why I don't think cryotherapy can get us there. I only think that cold uh, cold baths can get us there. But of course, I'm only speaking from a neurological perspective, not an immunity perspective. That's interesting. Yeah. I think, um, I think when you're, when it comes to the brain and you're talking about sort of like this acute injury or even with strokes, um, in this small subset of the patient population, yeah, I think there's potentially a lot of, um, you know, benefit for, you know, sort of cooling down the brain, um, in regards to the general population, I think we just need more data. I'm not, I, I just haven't seen anything strong enough to say that, you know, people should be doing cold plunges two or three times a week, where I feel much more confident that me going into the sauna two to three times a week mm. is going to be a lot more beneficial for me. If that makes sense. Yeah. 100%. So James, 
What's the future look like in the next two to three months, especially here in the United States? We're about to go into, well, look, we we are recording this, guys, on election day, um, but we're about to go into the cold weather. Where do you see the next, uh, I would say, from now until February next year? Where do you see us going in terms of uh, COVID-19? Well, we hit 100,000 cases in the United States in a single day, um, just Friday. And if we continue this path, I mean, you're talking about, uh, you know, a million new cases every week or even quicker. And in two weeks, we have all these people now that are going to be ending up in the hospital. So not two to three months out, I'm looking two to three weeks out is looking pretty grim for the United States because Mm -hmm. we are at record numbers that hundred thousand in a single day, no country ever has ever hit that for coronavirus in a single day. So we're, we're breaking record numbers on a daily basis in the United States. And there's a two week lag where we're going to have to deal with those consequences. So I think we're going to be in a similar situation that we were in when we first were dealing with the virus. And there's been some headlines, too, that just like any other virus, it has mutated and it might potentially be even more contagious. And I think um, that's something we should be keeping an eye on as well. And, you know, I just uh, I'm not super hopeful because of, you know, just the numbers and this whole discourse between should you wear a mask? Should you not? I mean, I don't think it's um, debatable if you should socially distance. Um, And then, you know, the whole, the whole issue with lockdowns too, and I don't even want to get into all of that, but, you know, it's interesting because I go back and forth on what's the right thing to do. Right. Because Australia, while it was terrible that they made everyone locked down in Melbourne for four months it is showing that that worked though. Um, And so same with China, they did a complete draconian lockdown and it completely shut down the numbers. Mm. So it's sort of like this debate between do you suppress people's human rights to like go outside and go outside of their home and be able to do things for the greater good. And so I, because I don't think every country is ever going to just strictly lock down. I think, we're going to have to let it, it's going to have to run its course through everyone because it's never going to go to go away. Like influenza doesn't go away and runs its course through everyone throughout the population. So ultimately all you can really do is, you know, you can socially distance, you can wear a mask. You can't, you can stay home. You can't, but what everyone can do is support their own immune system through diet, lifestyle, exercise. Absolutely. James, where can we find out more about you and get our hands on your book? Uh, So the book is The Immunity Fix. It's available on Amazon and people can learn more about me um, at drjamesdinick.com, which is my website, or they can follow me on Instagram or Twitter at drjamesdinick, D-I-N-I-C. You are amazing. Thank you so much for being part of the Neuro Experience podcast. Thanks for having me on.